And I'd like to start by uh, thanking uh, Stephen and Carolyn for, for the opportunity for this wonderful afternoon. Um, and I'm uh, stuck between two alcohol events. So you've, you've heard a little bit about uh, how teenagers in particular uh, have a predilection for alcohol and uh, what it induces. And of course it makes them less anxious. And you'll all have an opportunity to partake in some alcohol after my talk, which will also make you less anxious. Um, but alcohol is really only a short-term short uh, beneficial intervention with anxiety. And what I'd like to talk about now uh, in this sort of sandwich break between the glasses um, is uh, long-term uh, beneficial interventions. So I'm going to talk about really the talks in two parts. Uh, how can you use uh, experimental psychology to develop new and hopefully effective psychological treatments for different anxiety disorders? And then how can you solve the problem of disseminating them, of getting them to the public? Um, firstly, uh, how can you try and develop a new and hopefully effective uh, treatment? There are lots of different groups who work on this around the world. We've used a particular research strategy that has proved effective for us. Um, it has a number of steps to it. Firstly, what you try and do is identify the core uh, cognitive abnormality in a particular disorder. Cognitive abnormality because uh, our approach is um, a cognitive one where we see uh, anxiety disorders as a result of distorted beliefs and perceptions of how dangerous certain stimuli are. And so we're trying to uh, identify those distorted perceptions and then develop a theory of why uh, the anxiety problem doesn't get better on its own. So if you think that people have distorted beliefs about how dangerous certain things are, they're not consistent with the way the world is, you immediately have to explain why those beliefs don't correct in the light of experience. And so you need a theory uh, to account for that. We will then, once we've developed the theory, try and test it out uh, in experimental studies. Um, and um, for those factors that turn out to uh, be consistent in the experimental studies as maintaining factors, we then develop very targeted psychological interventions which focus on those particular maintaining factors and test them out in randomized controlled trials. So this strategy is one that we've used for four different anxiety disorders, but I'm going to focus today on the most common of the anxiety disorders, social anxiety disorder. Um, up to about 7% of the general population suffer from social anxiety disorder. Uh, it has a very early age of onset, uh, around about at the age of 13 as, as the average time, and it involves a persistent fear of social or performance situations. A classic performance situation is mine now, uh, public speaking. Thankfully, there are many worthwhile things to do in life than be a professor or a lecturer, and so many people, if that's their only problem, just get on with their life. Um, but um, for many of the people that we see, they have a broader range of social fears. They're very anxious about talking uh, to strangers, expressing their ideas with colleagues, doing almost anything while being observed, so even eating or drinking while being observed, talking on a mobile phone while people could overhear you. Um, it's a problem which is very persistent in the absence of treatment, has a very low natural recovery rate, lower than any other anxiety disorder, um, and uh, it brings with it a markedly increased risk uh, of depression. Uh, by the mid-30s, the average person with social anxiety will have had two episodes of major depression already in their life. Um, 
a markedly increased risk of uh, suicide uh, and also alcohol and drug abuse, where again in adolescence many people with social anxiety start drinking excessively in order to manage uh, their anxiety and it becomes a problem. Um, it leads to marked underachievement in life of all the uh, psychological problems you can diagnose in uh, childhood that predicts who will leave school without any qualifications. Social anxiety disorder is the best predictor. People, when the law allows them to leave a crowded classroom, will do so. You're also much less likely to be uh, promoted um, in, in the workplace if you have social anxiety because promotion isn't simply about how good you are at doing a job, it's also about your social networking skills. So how can we understand the persistence of social anxiety? Well, um, Adrian Wells and I developed a particular uh, theoretical account in the mid-90s which focused on three things that people do when they're in a social situation. Um, it's important to say that for most adults with social anxiety disorder, um, they don't get persistent negative feedback from other people. They have social interactions, they don't go terribly badly, um, but their fears still persist. So why is that? What are they doing when they're in a social situation? Which means they don't benefit from naturalistic exposure. Well, the first thing we'd say is that there's a shift in their focus of attention. People with social anxiety say they feel very self-conscious. And when you ask them what that means, they say, I'm really focusing my attention on myself and thinking how I'm coming across rather than on other people in the social interaction. That itself is a problem because of course if you have a conversation with someone and it seems to go reasonably well the chances are you won't notice that and so you won't benefit from that. But it's worse than that because when people focus their attention on themselves they become aware of internal information, so information in themselves which they erroneously take as very good evidence that they're coming across badly to other people. Um, the most common thought of someone with social anxiety, the most common fearful thought is other people can see I'm anxious. And when you ask people with social anxiety, how do you know? Uh, have people said to you, oh my God, you look very anxious over dinner in Magdalen College the other night. Um, occasionally people say yes. Uh, I was sitting next to the president, but um, <laughs> more often they say, um, no, uh, people haven't said that, but I feel very anxious. And if I feel very anxious, I must look very anxious. But that turns out not to be correct. There are many experiments that show the more anxious we feel, the more we overestimate how anxious we look. So there's a cognitive distortion there. Um, also, when people focus their attention on themselves, they become aware of uh, images and they have a particular quality to them. They're what we call observer perspective images. It's as though there's a video camera in the corner of the room and it's looking at you and you see yourself as if observed by someone else. Now, of course, if that's what we really did, that could be quite a useful thing. There's a wonderful poem by Robbie Burns in which he muses on all the benefits to mankind of us being able to see ourselves as other people see us. And he suggests that maybe the English and the Scots might have got on a little bit better. Uh, and in fact, we all might get on a bit better if we could do that. But unfortunately, for the social phobic, um, that what they see is not what other people see, but rather their fears visualized. So for example, one of my patients is a young teacher, 
and she's very anxious about talking to other teachers in the morning coffee break. She thinks that if she speaks, they'll think she's stupid and, and an imposter in her job. Um, and when she starts to speak, she starts to feel tense around her lips. And that feeling of tension around her lips triggers an image in which she sees herself looking like this. And if you ask her, and what does that look like? She says, the village idiot. I don't need to observe other people's responses to me. I know I'm coming across as an idiot because I can see it in my mind's eye. And the last uh, feature that we highlighted is what we call safety behaviours. They are things you do to try and prevent um, something you're afraid of from happening. Uh, so, for example, someone who's worried about blushing may have their hair down, uh, have clothes that, that mean you can't see the blush coming up here, and if they feel hot in their face, cover it up like that. But many of the safety behaviours that people use are uh, mental operations. So, for example, this teacher, when she's worried uh, that she'll come across as stupid, if she's talking to you, at the same time, she'll be memorising everything she's already said and compare it with what she's about to say to you to make sure it sounds clever enough. And she'll censor what she's about to say if she thinks it's not clever enough. Now, this mental strategy has two unfortunate consequences. The first is that um, if the conversation goes all right, her basic fear that you'll think she's stupid won't change. Because she'll think, I only got away with it this time because I used this strategy. But in addition to that, <coughs> while you're talking to her, she'll appear as though she's not very interested in you. She'll appear as though her mind is somewhere else, which it is, it's on this memorising. So the chances are you will respond by being less friendly to her and actually cause the very problem that she's trying to avoid. So the safety behaviours are, in a sense, making a worse fear come true, although they're a strategy people are using to try and manage the anxiety. Well, that's the theory, but in psychology, theories are no better than bedtime stories until you can do some experiments to test them out. And so here's a few quick experiments that we've been doing on this. This was looking at, is it the case that people with social anxiety shift their focus of attention the way we said? Uh, in this task, uh, a rather challenging one, you have to uh, simultaneously try and detect some external stimuli which appear uh, on a uh, VDU and also some internal stimuli, uh, some vibrations that, uh, that occur uh, on your fingers which you're told uh, indicate a change in your physiological arousal. Because it's a psychology experiment, so it's false feedback. There isn't any change, but you believe there's a change there. Um, and uh, what we find is that if you take high and low socially anxious individuals, in this case it was Oxford undergraduates, um, they, and you're not threatening with them with anything, they're quicker at, at detecting the external stimulus. So they're somewhat externally focused. If, however, um, you uh, give them a, a social threat, you say, in a moment I'm going to ask you to give a, a, a lecture, um, and in the lecture there are going to be a group of experts in nonverbal behaviour, and their ratings have been shown to be very good predictors of people's final income level, something which gets all Ox Oxford undergraduates quite anxious. Um, uh, you find that those ones who, in, in general, are low on social anxiety, 
uh, they now shift to a more external focus of attention. It's almost as though they're already anticipating the audience and how they'll interact with them. But the high socially anxious people do the opposite. They become much more internally focused. What are they doing when they're becoming internally focused? Well, this was a, a structured interview study uh, of patients with social anxiety disorder or non-patients. And we just looked at whether or not they uh, experienced any images uh, when they are anxious in the last sort of social interaction they had, and also got independent raters to look at the content of them. And what we found was that the socially anxious people uh, are having a very, uh, about 80% of them are experiencing these negative, distorted observer perspective images when in the situation. Now, what do those images do? Oh, this is an example, by the way. Um, we often get patients to bring in cuttings from magazines and things to represent their fears. And this is someone who said, when, I, when I'm very anxious, I think I have wide, starey eyes. This wasn't uh, the patient, but he said, this is what I think I look like. Okay. So what are the consequences of these images? Well, this is a little experiment where we got people to um, have a conversation with a stranger. The stranger doesn't know what the experiment's about, um, but during the experiment, um, the, um, the person with, with social anxiety has to flip in their mind between their normal uh, negative, distorted images of themselves and a more realistic uh, image based on video feedback. And they flip backwards and forwards. Um, and the first thing you notice is that while you're holding uh, the habitual negative image in mind, uh, you feel more anxious. Um, you also uh, think, uh, this is your rating of your performance, you think you came across less well. Um, you're a bit mistaken in that because uh, the other person rates your performance uh, better than you rate yourself, so there's a distortion. But the very interesting thing here is that there's also a difference here which is uh, significant, um, that if you hold a negative image in mind, the other person um, is influenced by that, although they don't know this is what you're doing. Um, they, in fact, they rate you as they like you less, and they're less likely to want to meet you again. Why is that? How has this image communicated this way? Well, you'll notice that those people who have a negative image are more likely to engage in these uh, safety behaviors, the mental monitoring and things like that. So it seems like the image turns on these other processes which then put people off. So you have a quite complex sort of uh, chain of events from just a simple mental image. Um, Ah, I knew I shouldn't have changed to a PC. <laughs> okay, so um, these um, different experiments have led to developing a particular form uh, of cognitive therapy which has um, several key uh, features in it. The first is you um, help people understand how their self-focused attention and these safety behaviours are a problem rather than an advantage by getting them to have a a conversation with a stranger while focusing their attention on themselves or shifting externally. And what people discover when they do that is that the strategies they've been using for many years to manage their anxiety actually make them feel worse. And that encourages them to start dropping those uh, strategies and we train them 
systematically to focus their external their attention externally, get lost in the conversation rather than thinking how they come across. Um, that, of course, isn't a simple thing to do because people have been self-focused and self-conscious for many years, but we have a strategy that works quite well. And once you've done that, um, you then want to firstly get people to compare their mental images with how they really come across, and the most effective way of doing that um, we've discovered is video feedback, where you get people to have an interaction, video it, and then get them to compare their own impression of how they will appear with the video itself. Um, and uh, sometimes you, there's some tricks for this, you have to calibrate it. So for example, someone who's worried about blushing, um, we always do this particular bit of the exercise in, in my office where I sit them uh, in front of a bookshelf which has behind it books all of different shades of red. We don't mention why that is, but if they think they blushed during the interaction, we say, would you mind just turning around and point to the shade of red that you think your face went? And they invariably point to a very dark crimson. But of course, when they watch the video, they can see that they have a very delicate pink on their face, but they're pointing to a dark crimson, which is a very nice way of showing your distorted perceptions. Um, and then we get people to actually test out in, in reality how people respond to them. Um, and, there are, there, and we call these behavioral experiments. There are lots of ways you might do that. So um, someone who's uh, very worried that other people will think they're boring may normally try and pack their conversation with lots of interesting topics. This teacher, for example, would, would take three national newspapers, uh, read them all at breakfast, and write out a long list of interesting topics to introduce to her colleagues uh, in, the, in the coffee break. Um, and actually, she found colleagues didn't really seem very interested in that because she was giving a little lecture. So one of her exercises was not to write any of these things out, um, but instead uh, just to say things that came into her mind. And people seemed to be quite interested in that. And then we got her to do something more risky, ask her to actually talk about something that she thought was boring and she thought everyone would get up and leave but actually remarkably even more people stayed at that point. Um, so there are uh, lots of little experiments you'll do with people to test out their particular beliefs. So, uh, oh and this is one of them actually. So um, this was brought in by a paper, a patient who was very concerned that when she was in a crowd everyone she thought would turn and stare at her and she thought that was because she looked anxious. And she said, it's a bit like this advert. Uh, now, this advert is for a Wonder Bra, um, and I suppose we have to assume that uh, someone uh, has just come into the room wearing a Wonder Bra, and you can predictably see all the men sort of drooling. Um, but uh, a number of the women are also looking on in admiration. Well, my patient wasn't particularly concerned about wearing a Wonder Bra, um, but uh, she said, that her feeling is when she was going to a restaurant, the same thing happens. Now, this is a prediction, and so we just stopped the interview, left the office, and went to the nearest restaurant, had a quick look at the picture first, and then walked in and saw, you know, is your, your experience the same? And of course, it was not at all similar. So that's a quick overview of these sort of treatments. Uh, do they work? Um, well, this is uh, one of our first trials of the treatment where we compared uh, people who received cognitive therapy 
with people who received the leading alternative psychological treatment at the time, was called exposure therapy or, or no treatment or weightless control. Uh, a bit difficult to see up here. Um, the exposure therapy was certainly worth having. 38% uh, of people lost the diagnosis of social phobia from that treatment, whereas on the weight there's very little improvement. But cognitive therapy did significantly better. 84% uh, of people lost the diagnosis, so they recovered. And these are people who had, on average, had the problem for uh, 18 years. Um, and um, a one-year follow-up, that difference is still there. Um, the treatment has now been taken up in, um, by research groups throughout Europe. So there are now seven randomized controlled trials. Um, and it has been shown to be, as you saw, uh, superior to exposure therapy. Also, a, a group version of cognitive behavioral treatment, actually two different versions, uh, a therapy called interpersonal psychotherapy, the psychotherapy which started everything, uh, Freud's own psychodynamic psychotherapy, uh, also to the leading medications called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and placebo medication. This is probably the most extensively validated psychological treatment we have. I don't think we have any other psychological treatments that have shown such clear-cut superiority to all the alternatives. Um, as you'd expect, uh, it isn't all just verbal. There are brain changes that accompany uh, the, uh, this treatment. Uh, here we have um, uh, some activation in a, in a task which is particularly to do with thinking about the way you appear to other people um, and um, clear-cut differences between patients and controls pre-treatment, but they're normalizing with the therapy. Um, I'd now like to move on to the question of how do you make these treatments more widely available. Um, there is a big problem with psychological treatments. The research on them is funded by public bodies, in England the Medical Research Council or the Wellcome Trust, and those uh, bodies of course have an enormous uh, demand on their resources, um, and so they quite rightly are not at all interested in uh, ensuring that the products of their research get into the healthcare system. They're interested in developing uh, the treatments in the first place, but they think it's someone else's job to get into the healthcare system. Now, the alternative approach, of course, is drugs. And if you develop a drug that turns out to be effective, then billions of pounds go into ensuring that it gets into the NHS. <coughs> Nothing goes into ensuring that psychological treatments get into the NHS. So this is quite a problem, and it's one that... Um, in recent years, I've uh, joined a partnership with Richard Layard, an economist at the London School of Economics, to try and solve this problem. Um, and I'd like to uh, move on to telling you about that in a moment, but just say there is another way of dealing with it, which is to try and uh, harness the internet. And so for social anxiety, we've actually recently developed here in Oxford an internet version of the treatment, which seems to do remarkably well. Uh, people can have virtual conversations with other people through webcams and things like that. We can do video feedback in the same way uh, that we've done with others, and we're getting the same sort of very powerful results. Um, this has been funded by the Wellcome Trust, and they've kindly agreed to make it available worldwide free of charge um, if our next trial works out the way we all hope it might do. But before then, I'd like to tell you a little bit about it a really very large initiative uh, that the uh, 
the government has been engaged in in the last few years to try and make these sort of treatments more widely available. And it's what we call the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, or IAT, initiative. Um, it's an English programme, it's not available in Scotland at the moment, um, which aims to vastly increase the availability of effective psychological treatments for depression and all the anxiety disorders. Um, what do you mean by effective? Well, we have a, a body here in the UK called the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is charged with reviewing the evidence for the effectiveness of different medical procedures in physical medicine and mental health, and then making recommendations on the basis of that evidence. So what we mean here is nice recommended treatments. Um, and uh, the initiative tries to make these treatments much more available by training a large number of psychological therapists and deploying them in specialised local services for anxiety and depression. How did it come about? Well, there are lots of strands to it, but I think one of the most important strands was an economic argument. So um, Richard Layard and I got together and uh, conducted a, a sort of study to try and calculate what the cost benefits would be uh, of making these treatments more available. So we looked at the cost of untreated anxiety disorders and depression, looked at what we know about the recovery rates you can get from these treatments and their costs, and then did the equations and published them in the National Economic uh, Institute Review. Uh, and you can see it seemed like a no-brainer to make these treatments more widely available. We calculated the cost of delivering them was about £750 per patient. Uh, the benefits to society uh, in terms of costs, say other medical costs saved, uh, extra output in work and things like that, uh, were about 4700 Or if you're just thinking about the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Alistair Darling when it started, George Osborne now, they would be banking about 1200 uh, from uh, making these treatments more vi widely available. So uh, this argument, plus uh, many other arguments, um, led uh, initially um, uh, the Labour government to make a manifesto commitment back in 2005 to roll out psychological treatments more extensively. Um, but after the election, they quite wisely thought, hmm, this could be very expensive and we need to make sure it works. So they um, funded two pilot sites, one in Newham in North London and one in Doncaster. They awarded uh, each of those areas a substantial sum of money for a year and asked them to try and scale up the availability of psychological treatments. Um, there was some evidence that for some people you don't need face-to-face -face therapy. Uh, some people can benefit, particularly if it's mild to moderate cases, from what we call guided self-help, where they may be given a booklet or a computer program um, which takes them through many of the key steps and then have someone contact them regularly to encourage them and move them through it. So um, a principle of step care was developed where for the mild to moderate cases, often people would have these low intensity interventions first and only be offered the more traditional face-to-face -face therapy if they hadn't responded to the low intensity work. Um, there was a view that um, this psychological treatment alone uh, is not necessarily uh, the best way of uh, solving all mental health problems, but we're in a social setting, and for example, it's very helpful for someone to have a job. And so 
linked to this was uh, employment advice, debt counselling advice, and things like that. Um, and um, the government really wanted to know whether this was beneficial. And this is a very difficult problem in mental health. Um, in most mental health services, um, only about 30% of people who go through treatment will actually provide objective data on their symptoms at pre and post treatment. That's partly because many clinicians don't use objective measures. It's also partly because many people might stop therapy a bit earlier than you anticipate, and so you don't get the end point. Um, we didn't want to be in that situation, and so we used a session-by-session session outcome monitoring where every time someone's seen, they fit in a very simple measure uh, of anxiety and depression. So even if they drop out of therapy early, you'll know how well they did. Um, and quite a lot of people felt that the stigma of mental health might mean that many people actually are too shy to go along to their GP and ask for therapy, especially when they know the GP won't be offering it themselves. And so we wanted to see what happens if you open up the whole system to self-referral. Now this was a very tricky thing. The NHS is based on the principle that we don't have self-referral. The GP is the gatekeeper to access the specialist treatment. It's a way we control costs. But um, just for this experiment, we were allowed uh, to open the system up to self-referral and see what happens. Well, what happened? Well, um, the first thing to say is that this very simple session-by-session session outcome monitoring achieved something that had never happened before in mental health. We got essentially complete data. So in Doncaster, 99% of people who were seen at least twice had two data points. We got a pre- and a post-treatment data point. In uh, Newham, it was rather less, 88%. But actually, 10% uh, of people didn't speak or read English, and the forms at that point were in English, so pretty complete. Um, large numbers of people could be treated with this um, uh, step care system, um, and the outcomes were broadly in line with those you expect from the university-based randomized controlled trials. So just over 50% of people recovered, many other people showed benefit. Our economic analysis also did rely on some people who are out of work moving into work. And we found that the uh, economic chain, the employment benefits, were actually somewhat larger than we calculated in the economic analysis. What about self-referral? Well, it turned out to be very important. Um, many people thought that the, the, the people who would self-refer are people who um, perhaps the sort of guardian reading uh, um, people uh, who had read about cognitive behaviour therapy and other things like that and thought they'd like to give it a go but didn't really need it. It was a sort of lifestyle choice. Um, and that was a prominent view in the Department of Health, I think it's fair to say. Um, there were others of us who felt that there were some people who, for one reason or other, had been suffering a long time in the community without any access to treatment. Well, thankfully, we were right. Um, so when you compare uh, the self-referrals with the GP referrals, you found that the self-referrals were as severe in terms of their anxiety and depression, but they'd had the problem for longer. They were also much more representative of the community. So in Newham, which is very ethnically mixed, the GP referrals were excessively white. But if you look at self-referral, you get the full range of the community coming through into the system. This was a very important 
finding and led Alan Johnson, the minister at the time, to take the really revolutionary decision to say, for the national rollout, we'll open the whole system up to self-referral. So there is now uh, a national program. Um, it's a six-year program, started in 2007. The total funding is about £700 million, and the aim is to train 6,000 new therapists over that period of time and employ them in new clinical services for anxiety and depression. Um, they will follow nice guidelines about the treatments offered. Uh, often it's cognitive behavioural therapy, but not always, because there are some other nice recommended treatments. For the first time ever, we have national curricula uh, that people are trained to as psychological therapists, and those curricula are, are aligned to publish competencies for each of the therapies, which are based on the exact way that the treatments were done in the randomised control trials that generated the evidence base. Um, and when the initiative was first announced, the politicians wisely, but frighteningly for those of us who are responsible for delivering this, didn't say we'll judge it by reductions in waiting times or other proxy health targets. They said this money will buy 50% of people recovering. So clear outcomes. Uh, what's been achieved so far? Well, um, IAP services are now available in 98% of the PCTs around the country. We're about three, halfway through it. Just over half of the targeted number of therapists have been trained. The services are now seeing approximately 600,000 people per annum who wouldn't have had treatment otherwise. Um, the aim is for 900,000 by 2015. Um, at the end of the third year, the data shows that the programme is on target on average. Um, uh, 859,000 people had been seen at that point. The target was 900,000. Um, 34,000 people had moved off sick pay and benefits. The target that Richard Layard and I calculated in the economic analysis was 22,000. Um, and the recovery rate then in these new services was about 40% below our target. But it is now, if you look at the last three months, 46%. So we're getting close. Um, however, um, there is some variability in performance um, and this is rather interesting, it's something we're analysing. So this was data taken in the first year uh, and this is each of the services that were there in the first year, there were only 32 then. Um, and you can see the variability in recovery rates goes from 27% to 58%, very big variability. This is very similar to the way we, the, where we were with cardiac surgery not so long ago. And so we're now trying to understand what this variability is about and try and drive the system to move the quality up. And there are several interesting findings, but the one I want to um, show you actually is to do with compliance with NICE. So in the psychotherapy community, it's quite controversial, um, the idea of randomised control trials and basing your practice on the treatments that have been shown to be effective in randomised control trials. There are quite a lot of people in the community who say, well, those trials are very interesting, but they're rather selective in the people that they see. Um, and it's actually quite difficult to implement the treatments in those trials in a faithful way. And clinical judgment is extremely important. So probably you know, in the real world, the results of these trials won't pan out. And you should really be allowed to still sort of go off-piste in therapy when you feel you'd like to. Um, well, um, 
the IAP program has proved uh, a way of looking at this because, uh, of course, the aim is to do the nice compliant treatment, but actually uh, there are quite a number of occasions when therapists go off-piste. It's a natural experiment, so you can look at what happens to the patients when they do that. And the findings, uh, and this is in the first time anyone's ever been able to do this on massive sample sizes, you know, tens of thousands of people, um, is that it really does matter uh, if sticking to NICE guidelines. So in depression, NICE recommends cognitive behavior therapy and also counseling, uh, and they're about equally effective. In generalized anxiety disorder, another anxiety disorder, uh, NICE only recommends CBT. Those people who got counseling, therapists went off piece, did considerably less well, much lower recovery rates. Um, and at the low intensity end, you get the same thing where in depression, guided self-help is recommended by NICE. Pure self-help, just getting a book and sent off on your own is not recommended. And uh, if your therapist gives you pure self-help, you do a lot less well. So it really does seem important to follow um, the practices uh, that come from the randomized controlled trial. Um, this initiative was started by the previous administration. Uh, we, of course, now, for the first time, for a long time in England, have a coalition. Um, and this was uh, the coalition's uh, program for government, and we were very pleased to see that it included a commitment to continuing this emphasis on psychological therapies, a commitment very much in tune with the times. Uh, uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg said, we will ensure greater access to talking therapies to reduce long-term costs for the NHS. Uh, so, of course, we're co collecting that data on the cost-benefit analysis. Um, and uh, the program is being expanded uh, during the course of this parliament. The aim is firstly to complete the rollout of the adult services by training about another 3,000 therapists, to start to develop one of these programs for children because um, a lot of the problems that we see de develop in childhood uh, and so much of your life can be destroyed if you don't get the educational qualifications that you're able to get uh, and anxiety and depression often prevent people from getting them. So we're trying to move that into the children's services. Um, if you're anxious or depressed and have cardiovascular disease, um, it costs about three times more for the health service uh, to treat your cardiovascular disease than if you're not anxious or depressed. So we're also trying to make these services more available to people with long-term physical problems for their own benefit, but also societal benefit. Um, I, I spent a delightful year living uh, just one street away from Steve Jobs, um, and he persuaded me to shift to a Mac, and I've never been near a PC since until now, and I can see why he was right. Um, and uh, lastly, I'd like to um, just um, point out one of the legacies that's come out of this, and it's really a, a revolution in mental health, and that's public transparency. So uh, if you were to log on to this website, uh, you would be able to see um, the uh, recovery rates for all of the different IAPT services around the country, the number of people they see, how many they've recovered uh, in the last three months. We have never had this in mental health before. Uh, the public has never been able to see how well different mental health services 
perform. And of course, it's never been possible to study variations in performance and then use the study of that to drive the system forward. Um, but this simple monitoring system, which we in fact developed uh, in the tragedy of the Omar bombs in Northern Ireland, where we did a smaller community initiative there, has provided an extraordinary database that we can now use uh, to generate transparency and drive the system forward. Um, and uh, this is going to become much more elaborate very soon. So uh, by Christmas time, each of these services will be submitting uh, 50 data items centrally for every patient um, on covering demographics, diagnosis, the type of treatment they received, and how much they've improved. So we hopefully will have uh, a national experiment running nearly a million people per year through it, which will allow us to learn much more about how to evolve our mental health services to be more efficient and more effective for people. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Hi. Who provides the long-term care for people who don't recover? Okay. Uh, yeah. So two things about that. Firstly, recovery as a sort of binary criteria is probably not the best index. So um, you should, I suppose, look at the, whether people got any benefit from the treatment, what we call reliable improvement. And the rates for that are rather higher. It's about 65%. Um, and but then the question is, well, what about the people who haven't got that benefit either? Well, uh, what's happened up to now, of course, is that they've been in their GP care, and that's what continues to be largely the case. Or in long-term, They might be, but there aren't that many people uh, with anxiety disorders or recurrent depression that will be in long-term psychiatric care. That would be much more uh, to do with psychosis. No, it still is actually, and personality disorders. It still is. Oh, I see. Right. So I think. The so the, the question was, what happens to those people who don't recover? Um, and I think the implication of the question was that maybe an initiative like this is a, is a bad thing because they're getting less resource now than they would have done before. Is that the suggestion? Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, no, of course. Well, I mean, that is an interesting possibility. I mean, it obviously wasn't the idea behind the initiative. It was to release additional resource. But actually, the Department of Health has recently looked at this because my impression was similar to yours. But in fact, they've got all PCTs to return the information on what they're spending on mental health and what they're spending on psychological therapies. And what we've found that it is that investment has not really changed very much for non-IAP services between 2003 and now. They've gone up roughly in line with inflation. The IAP funding has come on top of that, and so there has been almost exactly a doubling of resource going into psychological therapies now than there was before. The result that surprised me as well, because we all know some services that, that um, are closing down. 
but on average there's a big increase in investment. However, um, your point, of course, is right, that there's still too little investment in mental health, um, and that's one reason why the uh, LSE group that I work with has recently uh, published a report uh, entitled uh, Mental Health Loses Out uh, in the NHS, um, and the key uh, bit of information there um, is that um, about 40% of all illness-related morbidity is to do with mental health, but we only spend 11% of the NHS budget on mental health. Now, that would be entirely justifiable at a time when we didn't have effective treatments, but now we have treatments which um, are pretty effective for many conditions, certainly have numbers needed to treat which look very good compared to statins or something like that. So we should be moving uh, the balance of investment. Um, and I think arguments from yourself and other people who are interested in mental health to support that uh, would be gratefully received at this point. David. Are those with anxiety disorders the people who are least likely to seek help? Um, it depends on the disorder. So for social anxiety, that's true. Uh, because people are often very embarrassed about asking for help, and so you need to work out ways of reaching out to them. The, one of the other disorders that I've worked on for many years is panic disorder, and in, in panic disorder, often when you first get your panic attack, you think you're dying, you think you're having a heart attack, and almost all of those end up getting pretty immediate medical attention because of that. Um, and so those people you know, could come into the services much more easily. Um, for something like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a sort of condition where you get um, intrusive memories uh, following a traumatic event. Say you've been a rape victim or a victim of a f some other sort of assault or involved in a road traffic accident, then um, whether or not you get help depends an awful lot on the knowledge of your GP. So we did a study recently, where, which was done in Brixton actually, which you know, has a reasonably high crime rate and a relatively deprived population. Um, and we found that there was a substantial number of GPs in Brixton who believed there was no one on their GP register who would have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you wouldn't be surprised to discover that those GPs had never referred anyone for treatment. But another GP, just a little bit further down Railton Road, actually was very aware of the presence of it and was uh, referring vast numbers of people. So there is a very serious problem in the UK at the moment to do with GP education. The Royal College of General Practitioners has been arguing for many years that all GPs should have some training in mental health, uh, which they haven't had up to now. But I'm pleased to say that in the last two weeks it seems to have been accepted that all GPs will, um, and they're going to have an extended training program to make sure that happens. Okay. You've obviously got some really fantastic recovery rates, over 50% or, or perhaps more if you look at benefits. Yeah. Um, even if it's not recovery. Yeah. I wonder if there are ways of predicting, either at the first session or very early on in treatment, who's going to recover, so that those who are not going to recover as a result of IAPS can be referred more rapidly to other sorts of treatments which might be beneficial for them. Yeah. Um, this is, of course, a very good question. Did everyone hear it? Are there? Yeah. So the problem, I think, with um, psychological treatment research to, to date has been that the sample sizes in most of the randomised controlled trials aren't really large enough to identify predictors in a replicable way. You, know, you get a finding, but it doesn't replicate the next study. Um, 
One of the enormous benefits of, of this new system where at least we have regular monitoring of outcomes in everyone is that we are generating these very large cohorts of people that you can do these predictive studies with. So this is one of the things that's starting to be done, I think. Um, and hopefully that will uh, allow you to move to a much more sort of personalized uh, medicine type system. Um, so there are enormous benefits for the whole mental health community moving tra to transparency in terms of measurement. It just speeds up everything in a way that we've not been able to have before. So the answer is not yet, but it's coming? Well, uh, not yet in terms of, you know, an awful lot of data. Um, in general, though, uh, for most of the psychological treatments, you find that early response predicts overall response. So if someone doesn't respond within the first three to four sessions, then their chance of showing full recovery is quite modest. Um, so what one would normally do, actually, is, is suggest that people, if they don't show any movement early on, start thinking about alternative formulations and moving people through that way. And that's partly how the step care system works. 